I practiced on Lynn Haven Methodist for seven years before I came here. So, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Isaiah chapter 54. If you've got a pew Bible, that's going to be page 1146. Eleven forty-six for Isaiah fifty-four. <clears throat> if um, Isaiah fifty-four is very closely linked um, to Isaiah fifty-three, if that would make any sense. <laughs> and um, I preached on that two weeks ago, so if some of the things in the sermon don't make complete sense. That's probably just my fault. But one of the ways you could help with that is by going back two weeks and listen, listening to that. But chapter 53 is the clearest emphasis on the work of Christ, what Christ would do, who he'd be, why he'd come, what effect that that would have. And at the end of it comes this chapter, chapter 54. In fact, there's at least three servant songs in um, Isaiah— that talks about the, the servant of the Lord and what the servant of the Lord would do in chapters 42, 49, and then here in, four, in 53, 54. And each one actually ends with a little stanza song. This one's song is the longest. And this is what it says. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because... More are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says the Lord. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. Now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken— and the hills be removed. Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stone. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. 
You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. And whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would come in the person um, of your Holy Spirit now and help us to understand this passage. Um, to apply it to our lives, to understand your desire and love for us, and to be comforted, strengthened, filled with joy, able to not, not be afraid, and to be able to respond in faith to what you're telling us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about y'all. Um, sorry, I was in the South. Um, but I'm, I've, had a, I've, a, I've had a long 10 days. I hope nobody said that I was in vacation when I wasn't here last Sunday. Um, Thursday last week, or Wednesday of last week, I started, I did some talks at Bryan College, see if I can make this work, um, which is in Dayton, Tennessee, and I was asked to do five talks on why 18 to 21-year-olds should care about the church, which five talks isn't all that much on that. If you want to hear them, they're on the Engage and Equip blog that you can get to from the website. And then I went down to Panama City, to do some fundraising for Redeem India, which you might think sounds like a really good thing. Um, I, I did not go to hang out on the beaches. I went to raise money because my buddy Manohar James has started this ministry, Redeem India. We don't have any money to do the amazing things that he's doing. And um, my proof of why that wasn't a great thing is because it was 30 degrees in Panama City the whole time I was there. <laughs> I've never been so glad to be home, and it wasn't because I loved you. Um, <laughs> Even though one of the things I always say when I go to Florida is, they're like, do you like Wisconsin? And I was like, yeah, sure. They're like, but do you miss it here? And I was like, I miss the water and the people. And I think I'm getting to the point where if I was there, I would still say I miss the people here. So that's good at least, right? Um, The water's terrible here. (laughs) On the way home, Lexi and I stopped in um, Indianapolis to meet with Grant Binger, who says hi, by the way, Jim Tanner. And— that's one of the church plants that we supported with our year-end gift. He says things are going really well, and that the support that they're raising so that he could um, work just on the church for the next year to help build it up is almost done. He thinks he can clean that up in Racine in the next weekend or so. But, you know, part of me wonders, you know, if I had to go give five talks on why people should bother with the church, um, how would you answer that question? Right? How would you answer a 20-year-old, even if you are a 20-year-old? And somebody said, honestly, honestly, why should I bother with the church? Why, why should I go? Why should I care? Why should I anything? Why should I give? Why should I serve? Why should I care how it's doing? How would you answer that? If you had any ideas, I wish you would have given them to me last week. One of the five talks— that I did. I'm just kidding. One of the five talks that I did um, was called The Identity of the Church, and it's partly because 
Um, I, don't, I don't believe in pressure politics. I don't think we should do things because we feel pressured to do them. One of the things that I learned through in marriage counseling training was that if you pressure somebody to do something in like a session, like I don't know if you've ever been to marriage counseling, but oftentimes there's this moment where the, where the wife is like looking over like this, and the counselor is like moralizing to the husband, like you should do this. And um, I'm not good marriage counselors. That's usually bad marriage counselors. And the, re- the reason why that's generally malpractice is because he's not going to do it more than about a week. Because he, he doesn't really believe it. He doesn't believe in it. You, you have to be self-persuaded. You have to, you have to believe it to do it. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I believe in the Bible, oftentimes when God wants us to do something, he doesn't just say do it, but he explains to us why that's what's real. Like that's your identity, right? So one of the talks I did was, okay, this has nothing to do with you. Here's what the church is. Because what I believe is if, if, that, if they believed, if they really believed what the church really is, then they would naturally do all the things I want them to do. You know, when I get in a, when I, when I talk with faithful friends about me being, not wanting to do stuff in, in like my, in my marriage or something like that, my, my most faithful friends will say something like, well, let's have a conversation about what a husband is. Because the, the issue isn't that I don't want to do X. The issue is I've forgotten what a husband is. And as soon as I remember that, I will do action X without having to work at it really hard, because it's just who I am. And when we recognize the identity of what the church is, if you really believe it, it will change the way you—your attitude towards it, how you act towards it, what you think about it, whether or not you bother with it, whether or not you—anything. Does that make sense? And I don't know if you picked that up straight away from Isaiah 54, but that's basically the theme of Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 is— basically God's declaration that because of what the servant did in Isaiah 53, that the servant anointed Messiah, who would be Jesus, would come and he would die as an atonement. He would take the sins of all the peoples on himself. The result of that would be that God would create for himself a new people from all the peoples of the world for all time through Christ that would belong to him, that would be redeemed, that would be saved, that would be their lives would be totally changed forever. And if, and if generally what you want from this sermon is something for you, that's totally fine. But you have to hear it through what God says he's going to do for all the people he's going to bring to himself. Does that make sense? Um, one of the things that this passage and lots of other passages demonstrate is that the thing that is called the church. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that's just a word that just means assembly. It means a group of people, but it refers to a specific group of people. It refers to the specific group of people God has redeemed. He's done the work of redemption. They've accepted it through faith, and they've become his. And God—and one of the things that's important to recognize that about that is it's not just that God says it's important. In lots of places in Scripture, God demonstrates that it's intensely personal for him. And he's intensely passionate about this group of people he's saving. So in this passage, he talks about him being their husband. And I'll get to some of that in just a minute. In another place, um, when the Apostle Paul, when he was still named Saul in the beginning of Acts, was going around throwing Christians in prison and trying to get them killed and all that kind of thing. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, and he knocks him off his horse, and he terrifies the bodily fluids out of him. And he— 
he speaks to Saul, and he says, Saul, and, um, and Saul says, who are you, Lord? Because that's what you do when a spiritual divine being knocks you off your horse. You refer to him as Lord for future reference. And, and this is what Jesus said. He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? Because Jesus believed what he said in Genesis, that when the husband gets married to his wife, the two become one flesh. And in Ephesians later, Paul would write that for a husband to love his wife is to, is to, is to basically love his own body. Right? When Paul was killing and destroying Christ's church, Jesus didn't say, why are you hurting these people I like? He said, why are you attacking me? That so got into Paul's heart that later on in, in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, he's leaving the, the elders at the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, he, he says, listen, you need to keep watch over Christ's church. He cares about this place. It matters to him. And, and this is what he says. He says, it's the church that he bought with his own blood. And you see, in that context, he wasn't referring to atonement as much as he was referring to preciousness. It, 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 sure, it refers to atonement. He atoned through his own vote. But that's, in that context, he's relating it to the, the care by which the elders should care for the church. And he's saying, listen, this is how much Jesus cares about the church. It wasn't just a legal gig. He gave his life. He shed his own blood for these people. And here's the thing. If you believe in and trust in Jesus, what is true about the corporate thing that God calls his church is true individually for you and about you. And that has big implications for you. The general implication for the whole church is, is basically this. You're going to have more family than you expected. Whatever, whatever you thought this was going to involve— in terms of your privacy, or how many children, or who were you going to care for, how big the family was going to be that you were going to be a part of, it's going to be a lot bigger than you expected. And listen, I get that for most of you, you feel like that's probably bad news. I get that. I was in a car with six people for 10 hours yesterday, and the person sitting right next to me was 14 months old, okay? Like, I get the liabilities of big families, right? Even though most of the people that I talked to who were in families that had more than seven kids, except for Mark Otto, loved it. But in, in biblical times, your family was everything. And in this case, it's not just talking—this passage isn't just talking about the fact that God is going to save a big people. What it's also saying is everybody understood their individual salvation to be part of the strength of the clan they were a part of. How many children? How many parents? How many, how many people were gathered around you? How large, how strong was the people you were part of? Because if your people was strong, you're going to live. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to be saved. You're going to be okay. And so when God comes in and he says, this people's going to be big, it's not just meant to be a general statement that he's going to save all the nations. It's meant to also be a statement to you that he's going to take care of you. That's the implication, right? One of the things that means about the gospel or the good news for us that should come through this passage is that what God does through Christ, the servant in chapter 53, is more than could ever be done by you, even if you did it right. One of the things that this passage demonstrates is this. Because I like to think of myself as a person who does things right. Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't spend most of my life thinking of myself as a failure. I deal with pride more than fear. And I, I try to do things right, and my, ki my poor kids, 
you know, every, they ask me something, they're, they're going to have the time to get how they can improve, right? And I have to constantly fight against that because I think of myself as somebody who does things right. And my, my whole personality is designed around increasing efficiency, right? Which is great when you're a pastor. Um, but when you read just the first verse of this chapter, what does he say? He says, sing for joy, rejoice, you who never had any children. You who have been struggling with infertility your whole life. You've always wanted children. You know that that's how, how you're, you'll be provided for in your old age. You know that that's the strength of your clan. You know that's everything you've always wanted. You've never been able to have it. Now start singing. The modern translation would be, get a little rowdy with joy and happiness and excitement. Because, and here's why. Because the number of people I'm going to gather around you that will be your children, will be part of your family and clan that will care for you and strengthen you, are going to be more than the, girl, than the woman who did it right. The woman who got married and has a husband and had children and went through labor and did all that work so that she could have some children around her to take care of her, you're going to have way more children than her. It's encouraging and also sort of implicitly a little offensive if you care mostly about doing things right. Why should the barren woman have more children? Right? It'd be one thing if God was like, you're going to have nearly as many. What most everybody believes is people who do it wrong should still be a little bit behind even if you save and bless them. Right? If you, so for example, if we, if we support a food pantry, right? People who go to the food pantry for their Christmas meal, should they get a better meal than you? Or should they just get a meal but not as nice as yours? If you work. Right? Most people implicitly feel like they should get a meal. We want to take care of them. It shouldn't be better than mine. There's just something fundamentally wrong with that. But in verse 1, it's, ba- it's kind of what it says. He's saying through faith, and through God's work of redemption, the, the saving, the, the loving, the caring for, the providing for that God will do through the gospel, if you believe it, will be more, far more, even though your previous life has been a total failure and you don't deserve anything, it will be more than the person who did it right. That's one of the reasons why in the New Testament the Apostle Paul could refer to the gospel as an offense— because it is an offense for people who believe in law and getting it right and getting efficiency and doing everything. Who, now listen, and who do that not out of faith. You see, people who live well in faith, the Bible just calls that righteousness. And every blessing he talks about, anybody ever receiving, he pours out on those people too. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong or diminishing about trying to live beautifully out of the identity that God gave us. But when compared with those who want to work and earn and take and not trust God for what he gives, are compared with those who simply trust God, what this passage is saying is through what God does, they're leagues ahead of those of us who are trying to get there out of self-righteousness and self-efficiency and self-management and self-therapy. And it's meant to be a little offensive because it's meant to lead us to believe. There's three ways that God talks about how this happens. And it's really—here's the important thing, because this series is about the gospel in the Bible. It's about the good news. 
And one of the things that Isaiah 54 makes really clear is, is that God does all this stuff. All the things that are promised in Isaiah 54 for our personal blessing and salvation and provision, or what he's creating in this thing he calls the church, are all done completely by him. So the first one is that he makes it possible through his own Savior, right? This is partly related to the connection between chapter 54 and 53, right? So look at what it says in verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's meant to sound kind of permanent, right? The mountains may fall down, the hills might be taken away, but this thing I'm telling you is never going to stop, right? But if you track back through what's said before, you can see why— because the, the question is, why this change of heart? Why all of a sudden in chapter 54 does everything change? Why all of a sudden is something that hasn't happened since the days of Noah happening, where God swears something will never happen again and something will always happen from the, for the rest of time? Why is 54 such a cataclysmic change? And it's because of what comes right before it. Because of the servant in chapter 53 and what he does. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, which was what that covenant is, was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. The reason we have the covenant of peace is because it was purchased by the servant. And then if you go back several chapters to 42, the first of the servant songs, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, meaning I've called you the servant in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And then in chapter 49, the later servant song, this is what the Lord says, In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you, you as the servant, it's the Savior, make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, and to reassign its desolate inheritances. The word desolate and the word barren are the same word. The reason why chapter 54 can happen, the reason why he can talk about a covenant, which is an unchangeable agreement, and that covenant being of peace, is because there is one who has come already, the servant, who has taken all of the reasons why they shouldn't have any peace— and they shouldn't be the object of God's love. And he's taken it on himself. And he has taken the transgressions and the sins of people on himself. And he, he has purchased their pardon. And so therefore, in chapter 54, verse 1, everything changes. And you need to see that when everything changes, that that was the work of God, not us. And so he says, Sing, O barren woman, you have never bore a child, burst into song, and shout for joy. You who have never been in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. The, the word—oh, sorry, that's going the wrong way. The word—you see how it says, more are the children? That word more is the same word as many. It's, it just depends on where it's in the sentence, how you translate it. Most commentators say, look, it comes straight from Isaiah 53, 11. He, It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant, the Savior, will justify many. Right? And in verse 10, it says, that of this one who was crushed and cut off from having any children, that he will see his offspring and prolong his days. So when you ask the question, why is it that the woman who's never had to go through labor— 
I mean, there's probably a lot of women here who've been through labor, and they're like, that is just so not fair. Why is it that the woman who's never been through labor gets to have many more children than the woman who's actually done the work to have children? And you see, it's because her maker is her husband. The Savior is going to have offspring. And the Savior is going to justify or take many to himself, and they belong to him. And when he marries the barren woman, the woman who has not had any children, she, her children, are the sa- his children are her children. She has children because he has children. And it's not, it's actually not meant to be fair. It's meant to be free. It's meant to be good news. It's meant to be gracious. It's meant to be a gift, right? And the, the response that it calls for comes from the first verse. It says, be happy. All you have to do is be happy about this and make the tent bigger, right? And if, if you asked most women, would you rather pitch a slightly larger tent or would you rather go through labor? right? Most would probably pick the former. And here's the significance of that. If, if this woman pitches a bigger tent, is that a significant amount of work? It's not really. Not compared to labor, right? But what does it signify? Right? It signifies the belief that these children are coming. And they're going to come grown. And she just has to make room for them. Because she believes when God says, your children are going to be more than any other family. She believes him. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on. The second is that he does it because of his character, not because of our lovability. And that's a very, very important thing to understand as Christians, and you have to understand it a lot more and a lot more and a lot more. Um, we fundamentally go through life on the belief that our lovability is magnetic to the love that we receive. We all believe that. We're all pre-programmed that way. It's very hard to stop believing that. But we all believe that the love that we receive has been pulled in magnetically based on our lovability. And what this passage makes decently clear is that's totally false, at least in relationship to God's love. And probably the love then that God's love should produce in us towards others, right? One of the things, one of the verses that lots of churches quote, especially conservative churches, churches that believe in what the Bible actually says, like high point, is about divorce in particular, is Malachi 2.16, where God just straight up says, listen, I hate divorce. And that comes in a time in Israel's history where apparently it wasn't a very big deal. And he's like, that's, it's a really big deal to me. It's a huge deal. And God can say without flinching at all, he hates it, right? And then the same God with absolute integrity can turn around and say, I'm divorced. And he is. One of the things that I've I've told people who've gone through divorces that they didn't really want to be a part of, you know, I don't know about you, but I know that the law says that there are no-fault divorces because you have to deal with the fact that most divorces are mutual. That's totally false. I've been in ministry 15 years now. I've walked with people through piles of divorces, and maybe one or two were mutual, really. 
the other person just puts a good face on it and says, yeah, I'd rather be out. But that's not because they want to be out. It's because if the alternative is the, uh, the relationship never getting better, the other person continuing to be an idiot, then I suppose that's better since you're going to leave me anyway. But in almost every case, somebody wishes the thing could just turn around. It's one person that leaves. There's hardly ever such a thing as a, as a mutual divorce. They're almost all unilateral. All but maybe one I've been a part of as a pastor has been unilateral. And in the Bible, and so what I tell people who get, who are divorced, meaning somebody divorces them, and they do the best they can to have integrity, one of the things I tell them is I say, listen, I know you've heard the, ver- the verse that God hates divorce, but let me just tell you, God is divorced, or was. And this is important for a couple of reasons. You see, when you, when you read through the passage, so in chapter 50, verse 1, this is one of the places where God specifically refers to it. He says, this is what the Lord says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother was sent, sent away. In a number of places in Scripture, God relates specifically his rejection of his people, particularly in the exile, as him divorcing them. And he doesn't seem to flinch about that at all. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus can say in the New Testament that one of the only situations in which biblically somebody can get a divorce in which it's permissible is in the case of persistent adultery, because that was God's reason. Right? When you look at this passage and, and begin to work your way through it, there's this, con- there's this sort of opening, continued revelation about, about the hypothetical woman in here who is now supposed to burst into joy. The fir- at first, she's referred to as barren or desolate. That doesn't necessarily have to refer to infertility. It, it can't just be a woman who just doesn't have any children, who doesn't have anybody. She doesn't have a— hu- So you could—because in the next clause, it says the contrast is— the, the one who has a husband, not the one who is fertile, it doesn't say, right? And so the word can refer to either somebody who is biologically infertile or somebody who is desolate, meaning they don't have anything or anyone. So why is this desolate woman desolate? Is it just, is it just that she was born infertile? Right? And then as you go on, you find out that she was widowed in her youth, which is a little odd. Why was she widowed so young? Why was Because wi- being widowed can refer to losing a husband or losing a husband to death or some other means. And so she enters into this period of essentially widowhood, like she's alone. She's young, but the, but the context of widowhood means nobody's going to marry her. That's the significance of being a widow, and that's why there's so much shame involved with it in the context. And that's why he starts out that second section by saying, you're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to be humiliated anymore even though you were a young widow. Because then we find out why she was a young widow. She was a young widow because the Lord her God deserted her because she deserved it. In the NIV translation, it says, you know, I was angry and so I left for a moment, but now I'll be— and so it it can almost sound like a husband that just was really rash and got really angry, and there's no reference to fault in the context. But if you've been reading through Isaiah, there's plenty of context about fault. The reason he was furious is because she was as adulterous as possible. I mean, she was was just beyond shameless. 
And he got justly angry, and his response was to divorce her and leave her. And she deserved it. She deserved every bit of it. And here's why the divorce is important. Because by the time you get to this passage, there's no reason left that God has to come back to her. There's no reason left. I don't know if you remember the place, I think it's in John's gospel. No, it's in Matthew and Luke, where the Pharisees say, I don't know why you act like you're the only son of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. Like, we're in the line of the promise. You know, we're God's children. And Jesus says this kind of interesting thing to him. He's like, listen, if God wants sons of Abraham bad enough, he can raise them up out of those stones. <laughs> he doesn't need you. What Jesus is saying in that context is if you say you're a son of Abraham, meaning part of God's people through faith, and you're not— you better not put your faith in the fact that you've labeled yourself one of his sons. Because if God doesn't have enough sons of Abraham, he can make them out of the floor of the stage. He doesn't need any of us. Right? Which is important to say before this happens. The husband that divorced this wife could have got another wife. Very easily. He didn't need to come back for this one. It was over. He'd sent her away. It was done. There's no reason left to recall that woman except for the fact that he wanted to. The, the only reason at this point in their dissolved relationship is that because he saw her, and he saw her shame, and she saw that she had no one. He saw that her life was desolate. He saw that she'd screwed everything up, and it was her fault— and he left her out of completely justified anger. And yet not that long after he'd left her justly, he looked at her and he saw the condition she was in and he cared. And his heart was full of compassion for her. And he, the one who justly and rightly had divorced her so that she had no claim on him at all, he went back to her and he said, I want to, I want to take you back. You should have children. You should have a husband. I'm going to be your husband. That doesn't happen very often. I don't know how many divorces you've been associated with. It's very seldom that somebody leaves on just, on just terms and leaves somebody a mess. And it's all clean and cut. And it's about ready for him to move on with his life, as we would say, in our, so that he can be happy. It's very rare that that person turns around and says, looks at the person they've left, the condition that they're in, and the condition that they're in means more to them than what they did to them. And instead of pursuing happiness elsewhere, or in terms raising up a people for himself out of stones, creating from scratch again, he goes back, and he, he takes back the one that he left. It's very different, right? I don't know if you had to read this, but in college, I had to read the creation story of the Greek gods. I don't know if you read this. They did it three times. They wiped him out and recreated. And people are terrible because we're the third creation, the one that was made out of clay. The gods created out of gold first. And they didn't like him, so they wiped him out, and they created out of silver. 
And they didn't like how they were, so they wiped them out and recreated again. Because it made sense to people that you throw away trash. It's always made sense to human beings that you throw away trash. And the more we live in a culture of what Dorothy Sayers called garbage and trash, I think it was, that is, the, the, the economy in which you fix nothing, right? The more you and I, I mean, some of us, probably my age and younger, if you're like 28 or younger, you, you've probably lived in a world where there's only a few things that you fix that you've ever owned. Almost everything that you've ever owned, if it breaks, you get rid of it, and you buy another one, right? You fix your car, you might fix something in your house, right? But everything else, you just, you just junk it. You just get another one. Things can't be fixed. They're actually designed to not be able to be fixed, right? I don't know if that drives, drives me nuts. I don't know if it drives you nuts. And so when you see this picture of this woman who, who's, who's desolate, she has nothing and no one. She's been ashamed as a widow her whole life because she was deserted by her husband justly, and everybody knows it, and then he comes back to her, and he takes her back to be his wife, and he, and he says, not, not only that, you're going to have more people to take care of you. There's going to be a greater and stronger clan around you, people who will look to you as their matriarch. You will be considered the mother. That is, that all of their desire to care for will be pointed towards you. That's what it means to be a mother in a, in a clan like that. She's preeminent in terms of receiving care because she was preeminent in giving care. And yet these children will be gathered to her by this new husband, children she never had to care for, who are now grown, who will come in and see her as their mother and care for her. And you see, in this context, that's the Jews. It's the Jewish nation. That when God, through his Messiah, would bring in all the Gentile nations, they would come in whole as peoples but they would recognize their indebtedness to that nation. That they were the carriers of the gospel. They were the carriers of the scriptures. They went through all of the plan of God's redemptive history to get to this point. Christ came through the line of their people. That all the Gentiles would come in and see their indebtedness to this desolate, husbandless woman. That now, through Christ, he would come back and be a husband too and make a huge family from all the peoples of the world. And then lastly, and really quickly, um, I'll come back to that in a minute, is that God does it by his, by his Spirit. One of the things that makes Isaiah 54 a little confusing is because it doesn't just point ahead. It points ahead to like three different things, <laughs> and that, that can be a little confusing. It points ahead to the return from exile. I'm not going to get into that right now. It points ahead to the death and resurrection of Christ and the creation of the church. But then it points ahead to the final glorification of the people of God as the church forever. That is, that the city of God would be rebuilt with great beauty. And there's this place that says, the city will be rebuilt with great beauty. No one will attack you. If anybody does attack you, they're going to lose. Um, your, all your children will be taught by me. And they, there will be no end to their peace. That passage is one of the reasons why many Christians believe in what's called the millennial kingdom. That is, that there will be a time when Christ reigns, that he'll return and he'll reign on the earth. There will, be, there will be a kingdom before the final end and judgment of all things. Because you get these things where like, there will be total peace. Somebody might attack you, but they'll lose. And you're kind of like, that happens in heaven? You get attacked in heaven? Really? And so there's, there are a lot of these sort of promises to Israel that many people believe um, that there will, there will be a period of time where Jesus will 
reign before the final, his final reign when all of his enemies will be put away. But however you slice that, part of what chapter 54 points to is the end. Where God himself will create the peace through his own spirit and his own power. Just flatly. And not by anything that we do. In fact, one of the things that comes across in the Old Testament again and again and again is God saying, you just stand there and shut up. And let me do this, okay? And then you can sing or be—you should just be happy about it. Like the only thing that he demands is an emotional response, which I, of course, I hate because I don't have feelings. But that's—in many places in Scripture, it seems like that's really what he wants. He just wants us to be happy about it, right? Which is very parental, right? You're happy just for your kids. All you want is for them to just be happy about it, not complain. To have faith. And in this case, it's that as well. What's accomplished is accomplished by the servant— because of the compassion of God, and it will be accomplished by his own spirit and power, and not yours. Nothing we do, and that's all. And here's what he says for us to do. Get rowdy and sing and be happy. Don't be afraid. Open up wide the gates of hospitality and accept in all the sons and daughters that I will bring. Church, right? And, and, and then when you get to chapter 55, we'll talk about this next week. Believe. Accept it. Enjoy it. Because something so cataclysmic happened in chapter 53 that he quotes the flood, right? Now, there's a number of things that happen just once in the Bible that are kind of big deals, but the flood is one of the biggest, besides maybe creation, right? Creation happens, and there's this point where God acts in time-space history in judgment against humans and kills everybody with a flood. And then after that, he says, okay, that— I'm not going to do that again. That was a one-time gig, right? And he says, just like in the days of Noah, where I did something, it was an execution of justice, and then I said, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do this, right? And that's when he created his people. He said, just like that was a one-time world changer, that's what's happened now. Now that this Messiah has come, now that the servant is going to die for the sins of everyone. Me having to evoke justice on a people like this, that those days are over because he's taken it. It's fundamentally changed. He's, he's saying, my attitude now is completely toward. He said, I can, I'm going to have compassion, everlasting compassion. I'm going to care for you. I'm, I'm not going to rebuke you again the way I did then. I'm going to do something different now. And that is, that is just like it, just like it, you could know in the time of Noah that would never happen again. So the whole world has totally changed now that this has happened. Now, th there's a couple effects that this should have on us. Um, one is that it should make us happy. Everywhere in the Bible when it talks about God doing something great for us, it says, be happy, shout for joy, be glad. Most of the words in our translations are a little archaic. They're words we don't use that often, and so we don't necessarily pick it up. But the Bible is full of commands to enjoyment because those, that, that's what faith will naturally produce. The proper emotion, if faith exists and God redeems, is happiness. The other is preparation and to participate in what God is doing. I mean, the only, the only command of action God gives in this whole passage, he says, make it bigger, right? That's what he tells the woman. He says, make it bigger. 
Make the tent bigger. Take the doors off the side so more people can get in. Drive the stakes deeper. Make the cords longer. Make it bigger because it's not about just you. It's about this whole people he's making. Right? Um, let me give you a, pra- a really practical illustration for us as a group. I think when you believe this, you start to care about the church, not just the idea of the church, but the church, and not just your own church, but this whole group of people that God is spreading this cosmic tent over of all the people he's redeeming. And um, so do you, I don't know if you remember about a month and a week ago, I, I was up here and I said, would you please pray for this church across town called Mount Zion. Do you remember that? I don't know how many of you actually did that. Can we renew for one more month um, right now? Yeah, a few of you did. And um, one of the things that our elders and um, Lloyd and I as pastors were facing was, God, what do you want us to do, right? We know we want to be involved in church planting, but ours is a church that declined and is hopefully regrowing. Like, what can we do? And over the last month and a half, Mount Zion had two concerts here. I don't know if you know that. They had a—there's a big gospel choir here, and, and um, Lloyd is part of hosting that and, and um, you know, making sure that happened. It was totally full in here. People had a great time. And then it, w- it was so good, they asked us if they could do their Christmas concert here. And some of you were at that. I was at that. Um, it was totally full. It was really fun. And we got to spend some time with Mount Zion's music director, Leotha. Stanley. And um, one of the things, Lloyd and I got together with him a a week or so later, and and we said, we said, hey man, what can we do? I mean, our church is praying for you. Um, We sent him, we sent him a really small gift and a a card that we were praying for them. And we said, what can we, man, what can we do? I mean, can we do anything like you, like, because it's been like six months, and we're like, listen, you guys are getting killed. Like, like, you don't have a, you don't have a, uh, an interim pastor yet. Like, man, can we provide something like that? Can Lloyd come and preach there some and like give you some continuity or something? And um, he's like, you'd really do that? Because that's like saying, here's $25,000, right? Because if some, one of our people are over there, right? And we're like, well, I mean, probably. I mean, talk about it and let's see, right? So they went and talked. They came back a couple weeks later and they were like, they were like, listen, if you'll do that, we would love that. We would love that. And so I got together with Lloyd, and I was like, listen, Lloyd, you're supposed to be here to save my life so I don't burn out and die. And, you know, you're not supposed to not burn out and die. But I don't know. This really looks like, like the Lord to me. I think we have the power to do this. We could, we could help. And so Lloyd prayed about it a good bit. And so we, he went and preached there on MLK Sunday, turned out. And um, just got a really great reception. The people there really enjoyed him, really affirming and um, sat down with their deacons, and um, they talked it over, and they, they said, and this is where we are right now, they said, man, if he could preach over here and give us some continuity, I think that this church could, like, we could revive. I think we could build around that. I think people could be gathered under some consistent biblical preaching from somebody we trust, that we know you guys really believe in. And it, it was really clear, Lloyd said, what was really clear is they, they know we love them. We hosted them a couple times. They've been over here. We're making friends with them. They know we care about them. And they were, they were like, we, and they know that we trust Lloyd. That he's been vetted here for five or six years. We know he's a godly man. They're like, we would love that. And so this last, I mean, I Skyped into an elder meeting from Florida to talk about this. And here's what every elder said. Man, that's going to be tough for us. That's going to be tough for us. 
mean, we just, this is our momentum, right? This is High Point's one. We hired our associate pastor. We saved up the money. We gave the money. You know, we've got another associate pastor now, and we're, we're moving forward, and this is good for us, and now what are we going to do? And, um, but every, but every elder was like, but this is right. It's right. It's what's right for Christ's church. It's what's right for the city. It's what's right for them. And we have the power to do something. We can do it. They're enjoying it. What difference does it make? Like, it's the, the temp pegs are supposed to go wider, right? We're supposed to care. Jim, um, Bill Taylor said in his normal snarkiness, he said, I don't know, some, there could be something here related to the second commandment about loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't know. We only punch him about once a quarter. And so one of the ways we're trying to live this out is, I mean, this last week, the elders, like, we released Lloyd to, like, be over there, like, three Sundays a month to preach and to take the time necessary to write those sermons. And listen, you're funding that. I mean, like, this is— I mean, I said this in the other meeting. I said, listen, if we're going to do this, we need to know what we're doing. We are not just sending Lloyd over there. We are sending our momentum over there. Because that's what we're doing. I've, we spent two and a half years building some momentum. I've, I've given my heart and soul for two and a half years to get him on board so that we could have some momentum with the synergy he would produce on this team, which is happening. And I'm like, listen, th- we're giving him and our momentum. And everybody's like, yep, that's right. And I was like, and we should do it anyway. And they were like, yep, that's right. So for some of you here, you might think that's weird, or why would you do that? Or are you being whatever with that? I I don't know. But for us, we're trying to live out this passage. We're trying to live out what would it look like if we cared about the whole bride of Christ the way God does, so that all the people could be brought in, and that many would be the children that he would have in this kingdom because of what the servant had done. And when, when you believe God's heart is like that, when he says, I'm going to be your husband, the Lord of all the earth, I left for a moment to chasten you, and now I come back with eternal compassion for you. You're going to be mine. Just like in the days of Noah, when I said, never again, so never again will I turn away from you, and my compassion will be set on you forever. I mean, what do you do when you believe in that? You see, here's the thing, to go back to the beginning. Nobody had to tell us to do this. Just like nobody had to tell City Church five years ago to pray for us and to send us a gift and to tell us we were praying, they were praying for us and that God was going to do something new at this church. Nobody had to tell them, nobody had to tell us. When you believe in that, you just start doing things like that. And they're weird. And this is one of the things I got to say at Bryant College to those students. And you might want to listen to talks because I got to brag about you guys. I said, here's what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to take those people who, who believed that if you were a good church, that meant you did 2% more than the other churches. That if you were a growing church, it meant you grew with like three people because most churches don't ever grow at all. And so if you want to be great, here's what you do. You try to be 10% better than everybody else. And I wanted to say, let's take those people and put them in a focus group room back here and close the door and lock it. And say, what would it be like if we just lived according to conscience with as much moral and truthful beauty as we could, with all the boldness that would exist if we really believed in something? And let's forget about what people say can and can't happen. Let's do it wisely, but let's do it boldly. What can we do that nobody ever does? What can we do that nobody ever does? And we're on like at least our third thing since I've been a pastor here. And it's, it's more exciting than anything I've ever done. 
And that's what I believe happens when you believe that. But it also happens personally for you. When you believe that's how God feels about his church, and you've trusted Christ to become part of this new people he's creating, all of that is true about you. And you don't have to be like, well, I don't know. I don't know. No, it's not I don't know. It's he came back to his divorced one. Right? There's this, there's this line in a song that I kind of like by a guy named Andrew Peterson, where he says this. He says, all of my life, I've held on to this fear. It's the fear that I'd fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. When you believe what he says in this passage, you believe that that isn't true. That fear can be gone. Because God is the one who brings more children to the desolate, abandoned, widowed, divorced woman than anyone could bear on their own. He is the one who goes back to the widowed woman who was ashamed since her youth and becomes her husband, the one who rules all the earth and no one dares say a word about her anymore. And he is the one who goes back to the person he rightly divorced, is totally free from, and needs never to speak too kindly again. And he goes to her, and he makes her his wife again. And he brings many more children into the household than she could, ever ha- she could have ever had. And they all turn to her as the mother, and care for and love her, and provide for her security and her redemption. That's what happens when the Messiah's servant Jesus died for our transgressions and was killed for our iniquities. When you believe that, you become part of Isaiah 54 forever. Let's pray. Father, thanks um, for, for this truth. I know it wasn't very eloquently delivered, but I pray that it would still be moving for us. I pray that everybody here would have some, um, would be strengthened. They'd be filled with joy their fears would be broken apart, that they'd be willing in their hearts to be a people of hospitality and open as wide the tent as it will go for the people of all nations that you'd bring in. And I pray, Father, that our thankfulness would be directed towards you and directed towards your servant, the Savior Jesus, who makes this possible. It makes it real and demonstrates how personal and passionate you are about this. And that knowing that how passionate you are about the whole church of all the peoples for yourself that you have saved, for all eternity, to know that when we come to you, we know that we are individually an object of that passion as part of that people. Help us to respond to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.